everyone would take your Bible and go to the book of Luke, chapter 16. Luke 16, if you don't have a Bible, there's some on the back table. Feel free to grab one. Luke 16. If I have the opportunity, I enjoy watching a, a show called Shark Tank. I know Russell watches it. We talk about it sometimes. Uh, if you've never seen Shark Tank, the premise of this show is that there's entrepreneurs, people that have invented something, um, some product or service that they're trying to sell, and they want people to invest in this product. They want people to give them money to keep their company going, and they need to convince the sharks, which are these five uh, successful businessmen and businesswomen that have enough money to invest in these um, these products or these services that, that people are presenting. And so the goal is to convince the sharks, but they're pretty skeptical. They want to make money. That's what the sharks want. They want they want to know if I give my money, if I invest in this, is there going to be a return on my investment? Is your product worth me investing in? Or if your product is kind of so-so, are you someone that I, that's worth investing in? You know, Can you really sell this to me? Are you someone that I want to partner with? Will I get some kind of a return on my investment? That's the big question that they are asking. Uh, some of us, maybe maybe you invest some of your money. That's a question you want to ask. I'm going to put my money somewhere. Is it going to lose? Am I, am I going to lose money by investing in this? Or, or am I going to gain money by investing in it? You want something that, that's going to grow, that, that it's going to be worth your time. And we're doing this all the time. We're spending money on things. You know, you, you buy a new car, and that's an investment. It's an investment that once you drive it off the lot, it starts losing value, you know. You want to find things, though, that you can invest in that are, that are going to grow in value. They're going to, you're going to have more money at the end of it. Jesus is going to talk about investing our money in this passage. In fact, in this, this in, entire chapter, he's telling us to invest ourselves in things that will last. Invest your money in things that will last forever. That's the big idea. Invest your money in things that will last forever. Can you imagine if, if someone showed up on Shark Tank with something that would last forever? Here's a shirt that will last forever. It will never run out. Here's a pair of shoes that will never get holes in the soles. They would invest in that immediately. There's not many things in this life that you can invest in that will last forever. But Jesus is going to talk about something you can invest in that will last for eternity. And you can do it with your actual money that you have right now. The theme of this whole chapter of Luke 16 is is riches and wealth, but specifically riches and wealth. When we think about it, the, the the King James uses the word mammon, and so it's not just it's not just money, but it's also possession. So everything that makes up your riches, everything that you own, he's saying you can. He's talking about riches and wealth, but it's talking about it in light of eternity. So that eternity is coming, Christ is returning, um, and and there. We have these things that are so temporary. What do we do with these temporary riches in light of eternity? It all culminates in the story of the rich man and, and Lazarus. And we're asked in all these, in this passage, how, how should we think about money? How should we think about possessions in light of, of the fact that life is so temporary and there's an eternity coming? Because we all have to deal with money, whether you want to or not, right? We all got to deal with it. We need it. You got to live. You got you to have it to, to survive. Some of us are wise with our money. Some of us have no idea how to use our money. Some of us have lots of money. Some of us have 
no money. <laughs> but some of us hate dealing with money. And some of us love dealing with money. You, you, you like figuring things out. Um, but no matter who you are or where you fall on that spectrum, we all have to use it. So everyone's got to use money. So Jesus' words apply to everyone. We have to figure out what we're going to do with it. So, so let's read Luke 16. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. I had intentions of preaching all those verses, but we're actually probably just going to hit 1 through 9 this morning. But I want to read it through 13 because I think that's the full context. So Luke 16, starting in verse 1. Jesus also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from my management, people will receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill. And sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If, you, if, you, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Invest your money in things that will last forever. This is a difficult parable, isn't it? I opened up a commentary this week by Leon Morris to try to gain some insight. And the first line I read on this passage was, this is notoriously one of the most difficult parables to interpret. Talk about encouraging, right? <laughs> so we're going from Luke 15, with the prodigal son, one of the most well-known parables, to Luke 16, one of the most difficult to interpret. And you can see the issue, can't you? Doesn't Jesus seem to be commending uh, this dishonest servant? It seems that he's he's talking well of this of this guy who hears he's going to be fired and then deceives his boss so that he can get ahead after he loses his job. And Jesus says, "Way to go!" I mean, is that what Jesus is? What, what, what's what's going on here? So let's let's examine the parable a little bit. Uh, we should notice the context. So we're kind of zoom out here a little bit. This is the fourth parable in a series of five. That, are, that Jesus is teaching here. So we saw three in chapter 15, and now this is the fourth, but it's got a different audience. You should notice that in verse 1. He also said to the disciples, so the first three parables we, we, we tried to point out very clearly, they were primarily directed to the Pharisees and the scribes, 
secondarily probably to the tax collectors and sinners that were there that day, but this is directed to the disciples. And so this is to the the followers of Jesus. There's a tie-in with the previous passage where it says here that this man, in verse 1, was wasting his possessions, was wasting his master's possessions. It's the same word that's used for the prodigal when he says that he was wasting his inheritance. So that's probably part of the reason that Luke puts this here, that kind of tie-in there. And we've already said that it's it's said in the context of an entire chapter about riches in light of eternity um, that sort of culminates with the rich man and Lazarus. So that's kind of what's going on here. Now, regarding the parable itself, let's think about it here. We have this, this rich man. Um, he has a lot of property, a lot of wealth, a lot of possessions, and so he has a manager who he's hired to help take care of the property and the wealth and, and all these things that, that he has. So this guy would have been in charge of probably keeping the books and doing some accounting, maybe other aspects of this man's estate. But it gets back to the owner that this manager is is mishandling things. He's he's not dealing rightly, rightly with what's been entrusted to him. So maybe he was you know using the company car for family vacations or something like that, or um, he was he was writing off these expensive dinners and they had absolutely nothing to do with his job but he was charging them against the, the company or um, maybe he's just stealing he's just taking personal funds and you know maybe not just sticky notes and things like that but he's you know he's pilfering a good amount of cash and it gets back to the manager everyone sees this going on and it gets it get back gets back to the rich man and so the rich man calls him in, and you see the speech there in, in verse 2. This is never the room that you want to be in, where your boss says, what's this that I hear about you? <laughs> uh, turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be management. He says, you're fired. I, I've heard about what you're doing, um, and, and I'm letting you go. Here's what I want you to do. Bring in the accounting books as sort of your last act as my employee, and then you can go on your way. There's, there's no dialogue in verse 2. So I think we can assume that the guy probably actually was mismanaging the funds, that that was what had happened. So we see his response in in verses 3 and 4. He sort of says, what am I going to do? I mean, have you ever been in that situation? Just everything falls apart. Now you say, well, what am I going to do? Maybe you've been fired from a job. And you come home and you say, oh, no, what am I going to do? And, and, you know, you have these, these circumstances in life where just everything drops out. And you say, I, gotta, we, I need a game plan now. I, I, what am I going to do? So he starts weighing his options. Option number one, manual labor. <laughs> he says, oh, that's not going to work. I've had desk jobs all my life, and I will not survive digging ditches. There's no way that's going to work. Option number two, I can beg. Uh, I got too much pride to do that. Uh, I'm I'm not going to take the shame of that. Option three. He doesn't really have option three formed yet, but he knows what it involves. Is he's got to he's got to find a way to get people to show him kindness. He needs to find a way to to put people into his debt, sort of. Maybe get someone to offer him a, a job. So suddenly it, it hits him. That's the force of that phrase. He says, "I've decided what to do." In verse four, it's sort of this. I've got it. Like, here's an idea. It, it, it strikes him. Here's what I'm going to do. So he has a plan, but he's got to act quickly because his manager wants him to bring the account book. So he works fast, and he calls this guy up, one of his master's debtors. doesn't owe the, the manager money. He owes the manager's master money. Actually, the manager's former master because he's already been fired. He just needs to bring the books back. He doesn't let this guy know. And he says, here, you owe my master how much? A hundred measures of oil. 
Well, let's, you know, let's cut that down. Let's just do 50. Okay, so sign a bill here for, for 50. And the guy says, well, you know, that's really nice of you guys. I appreciate it. If you ever need anything, just let me know. And then he does that with another guy. How much do you? A hundred measures of wheat. And the guy says, well, you know, just take, the manager says, take your bill, write down 80, and, and we'll call it, we'll just call it an 80. Okay. Wow. This is my lucky day. And, you know, I always thought you guys were trying to take all my money, but I appreciate your kindness. And so, you know, if you ever need anything, let me know. And so he does this. It, it has two here, but we could assume that there's, there's probably more. Um, but, but he does this with, with these debtors. And he comes back to his boss now. <laughs> and he turns in the accounting book that has just, you know, has the ink maybe hasn't even dried on the accounting books yet. He's changed everything over. And the master sees what the guy has done. And he gets ticked off and he yells at him. And he, he kicks him out of his office. That's not what he does. I mean, that's what I would do, right? You've got to be kidding me. I just fired you and now you're taking money from me? No, it says here... This is, this is the amazing thing about the parable. He says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Shrewdness for his, for his wisdom, for, um, for his quick thinking. Uh, that seems strange, doesn't it? That, that, that the rich man is going to a- admire this guy for what he's done. Now, no, he doesn't admire the guy's dishonesty. He doesn't admire the fact that he's stealing from um, from this rich man, but he admires his ingenuity. He, he uh, admires his wisdom in sort of securing a, a living for himself. If that seems strange, this is this is how business people think. They they can appreciate people who do business well. I, I imagine that not many people have seen the movie White Christmas, but if you have, there's this scene in White Christmas where there's these two sisters that have a, a, a singing act, and they tell a lie to get these two other guys who, who are big-time singers to come and watch their act. And the guy comes, and it's slowly revealed that the girl lied to get them to come. But the guy played by Bing Crosby, he's not upset about it. He says, oh, well, way to go, way to work an angle there. You know, He appreciates the fact that even though she lied, well, you know, she's... Trying to get something out of this. Thinking back again, if you've if you've watched Shark Tank, these guys they appreciate when you kind of counter offer. You say, you know, you push back on them a little bit. You know, these are the big wigs. They're the ones that have the money, and yet someone, this entrepreneur who has nothing and is asking for something, kind of pushes them a little bit. And a true business person, a true businessman, a businesswoman appreciates that. They appreciate the way that you do business. And so they may not be happy with the person if they get the raw end of the deal, but they, they admire their guts. They admire their wisdom, their, their shrewdness. I think that's where we can maybe settle some of the issues here of trying to interpret this, this parable. That Jesus is commending this dishonest manager as some sort of example for us. And again, the rich man in the, in the parable is not impressed by his deception. He's impressed with his wisdom with his shrewdness. And I think in the same way, Jesus is not telling us we need to be dishonest or unrighteous in the way that we deal with money and with people. He's, he's saying you need to be wise. He's praising wisdom, not deception. So he's drawing an example and saying, learn from this guy who was wise. He was smart. He was diligent. So this is where Jesus starts to draw parallels and, and give some practical um, Application. So notice the parallel here um, in verse 8. The master committed the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd or wise 
in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So he divides the world, as it were, into two categories. There are sons of this world, and there are sons of light. That's in some way how Jesus views the world, and that's the reality of of what the world is. There are sons of the world, people who are fully invested in the earth, who who live for themselves with, with no thought for God. They remain unreconciled to God. They are, as, as we saw in our reading this morning, as John was praying, they are in darkness. They, they do not want to follow God. And this is how we are all born. We're all born as children of the world. We are born in darkness. We, all are, are all, we are all born in sin and we rebel against our Heavenly Father. We live as children of sin and Satan, not as children of light. But Jesus has come to bring us into the light, to make us children of light, to call us as sons and daughters of light. He came to bring light into the the darkness of sin. Jesus is the light of the world. He lays down his life to rescue us from darkness. He calls us to be his children, to live in the light of Christ, to be saved from darkness, to be saved from our sin. But he says that the children of light have something to learn from the children of this world. There's something that that we can glean from them. He says that those who are are working for worldly possessions, those who are just invested in worldly wealth, are more diligent, they're, they're more cunning, they're more shrewd, and they are wiser than the children of the light. That those who are seeking after worldly riches are working harder at that then the children of light, then the followers of God, are working at growing in Christ-likeness and seeking to advance the kingdom of God. So he's saying that, that business people, they're waking up every morning, they're getting up early, and they're seeking after all the money they can get. And the children of light are sleeping in. And we're not seeking after God in the morning. We neglect his word. We neglect time in prayer. He says that there's young people and they're, they're reading books on leadership so they can get, they can become better leaders in their company so that they can climb the ladder of success. They can advance higher and higher. And we neglect to read God's word. We're not, we're not trying to grow. We neglect to read other things that would help us to grow in holiness and in righteousness. And they're working hard. For secular things, for worldly things, for wealth that won't last, and, and we're not willing to invest in things that will last. It talks about on, it's, it's entrepreneurs, they're thinking hard how they can advance their company. But the children of God are not thinking at all about how to advance the kingdom of God. The, the church is not being shrewd, it's not being wise, and how we can let people know the good news about Jesus. That salesmen, saleswomen, they're, they're doing everything they, they can to make sure that everyone that they know has a chance to purchase their product, but we are lazy in letting people know the good news of Jesus Christ. Even crooks. Crooks like this guy. This guy's a crook. He's stealing. He, he was stealing and he continues to steal. But even this guy is more committed to his own good than we are committed to Christ very often. He says you need to look around and see these people. That they're, just, they're working hard. And they're working hard for things that won't last. And the sons of light are sleeping. They're not working hard. We're we're not trying hard. We're not seeking to do anything to advance the kingdom of God. So think about that in your own life. I think one thing to do is not just to compare, compare our own hearts. Am I seeking after worldly riches more than I am seeking after the kingdom of God? 
that's one thing to think about. It. You know, do I invest more time and energy in trying to gather wealth from this world than I do in investing in things that will last for eternity? That's one question we need to ask. The other thing we need to ask is, as I look at people in this world, the sons of this world, are they working harder? Are they investing more time and energy than I am in things that won't last when I could be investing in things that will last forever? It's true. I remember reading, I couldn't find the quote, but of a pastor who was always frustrated when he, it was obviously in a bygone era, but he was frustrated when he would hear the blacksmith at work before him. He said, I should be up working harder than they are because I have something more of more value to work for than they do. It's a good question. So, so what, are, what are we supposed to do? How, how can we be more diligent? How can we be more industrious? How can we be more wise? How can we be more shrewd in the way that we invest our money and, and literally investing our wealth? And Jesus makes it clear in verse 9. It, this is a command. I tell you, Make friends for yourselves, not just make friends, how? By means of unrighteous wealth, or mammon again, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So Jesus says in verse 9, use your money to make eternal friends. (laughs) That's the main application. Use your money to make eternal friends. Friends forever, right? Like Michael W. Smith. (laughs) That's what I kept singing when I kept thinking about this. Friends that are friends forever. Uh, So the the question is, how can I how can I use my money to make friends? Well, he's not saying that I go up to someone and say, "Here's five bucks. Will you pretend like you like me?" You know, maybe you did that in high school. I don't. Don't tell me if you did. But it it would seem that, that actually, in the context of of Luke. And in the context just of these verses, that these friends are, in fact, make friends with those who are in need. Make friends with, with, with the poor and the lame and the crippled and the blind. Isn't that what the instruction in chapter 14 was? When you have a party, here's who you're supposed to invite. The poor, the lame, the crippled, and the blind, because they can't pay you back. So, so I think that's where he's pushing it. You need to make friends with the things that you have. Make make friends with those that have nothing, those that cannot pay you back, who, if you invite them for a meal, they have no food to give you in return. They may not even have a house that they can invite you into. We might expect him to say, make friends by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, when your wealth fails, they will take you in. They will help you out. They They will provide for your needs because you provided for their needs, which is true to a certain extent. That's what that manager was was relying on. But Jesus takes us from the realm of the earthly to the realm of the eternal. And he says, make friends now with those that are in need, so that when your money fails, they will receive you where? Into the eternal dwellings. When money fails... When we die, money, it doesn't do anything. You can't take any of this with you. Money, money counts for nothing. You can't, you can't take the money that you have in your pocket would not be worth anything. If you had money in your pocket, your possessions, anything that you've acquired, it's, it's worth nothing. None of our earthly possessions are worth anything in light of eternity. But Jesus says, here's what's worth something. 
the friends that you have made. You can take your money that, that will not last and you can invest it in something that will last forever. And the thing that will last forever are friends in need that you help. What a crazy thought. What, do you, what a unique thought. That's, that's worse. And they will welcome us into heaven, it says. They will welcome you into the eternal dwellings. And they will welcome us as a testimony of the genuineness of our faith. Listen to these words of a guy named William Tyndale. William Tyndale is probably one of the main reasons you have a Bible in English. And he wrote this in a, a long time ago, uh, back during the, the time of the Reformation. And so I'm going to change some of the ye's to you so that we can understand a little bit better. But he, he's speaking of this parable. He says this, uh, make, you, make friends of the unrighteous mammon. He uses the word mammon there. That is, show your faith openly. And what you are within the heart, with outward giving and bestowing your goods on the poor, that you may obtain friends, that you can get friends. That is, that the poor, on whom you have shown mercy, may at the day of judgment testify and witness of your good works. That your faith and what you were within the heart before God, may, they, may there appear by, the, by your fruits openly to all men. So this idea that when we come into the kingdom, there will be poor people, people that were in need, that we helped with, with the physical things that we had, whether it be money or anything else, and they will welcome us in as a testimony to the genuineness of your faith. So, so the point here is not, and Tyndall wrote a whole book on this because he wanted to prove that this is not about earning your way into heaven. This is not about that, that, um, good deeds earn us heaven, but rather that they are an evidence of the genuineness of our faith. That no one gets to heaven based on good works. We are saved by faith alone. But as we often said, the faith that saves is never alone. That, that's it's going to show it for itself forth in good deeds, and that's what James says so clearly in in James two. Let me read to you James two. James two verse fourteen. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Implied answer, no, because faith always has works. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith, by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If we truly have faith, it's going to show itself forth in good deeds, specifically related to our money. It's going to show it forth that we will take our money and we will give it to those who are in need. There's a debate in verse 9 about who the they is. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal domains. Now, most naturally to me, I think it means the friends, that the friends will welcome you in, but there are people who say that it's like possibly the angels or God himself will welcome you. And there is a sense in which God is the only one that can welcome us in, but I think that the picture here is, is that those that we help will, will be there and they will be welcoming us as evidence of the genuineness of our faith. That they will be, as it were, testimonies that what we said we believed about Jesus is actually what we believe because we showed it forth by investing our treasure in people in need. They will give testimony before Christ 
Think about that. All these people that you've helped in your life, that, that, that maybe you did it and no one else knows about it. Maybe you've given money and no one else knows about it. They will be there. Those that have been blessed, they will be there and they will welcome you in. And they will testify that this person really believed what they said and they showed it. Because they'll come in and they'll say, you know, you, you used your car and you used your gas. You gave me a ride to church. You gave me a ride when I was in need. You helped me out. And that, that's an evidence that you truly believed. You filled a shoebox full of gifts and you sent it halfway on the road because you cared about me. And, and, and that person is there and they said, this is true. It's genuine faith. It's not that that earned you salvation, but is proof is the fruit of true salvation. You know, you made more than enough food on Sunday night to make sure that when I showed up with nothing, that I'd have something to eat. You, you know, you, you, you came and you served this Thanksgiving meal to me when I'd fallen on some tough times, I didn't have anything else, and you invited me into your place, and you let me eat this meal with you. You, you gave money to the rescue mission to help me out. You gave money to your church's benevolence fund. And that, the church took that money and they used it. It was money that you gave and the church used it to help me. You paid for my room at a hotel when I had nowhere else to sleep. You, you took me out to lunch when I was hungry. You invited me into, my, into your home when I was in need. I was sick and you fed me and you, you cleaned my house. You took care of my kids. You took care of me in my old age. These are all people that are welcoming us into heaven because we took our earthly wealth and we invested it in something. Something that will last forever. It's friends that we have made with that money. And they will be there as witnesses, as testimony of the fact that your faith, that my faith, was real. The debate about who it is that's welcoming us, I think you could say both, couldn't you? That they will be welcoming us, but what does Jesus say about the good deeds that we do for people? And as much as you have done it unto the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. So there's a sense in which Jesus could be the one welcoming us, saying, you did that for me. When you helped that person in need, you were helping them, but you were also helping me. And the genuineness of your faith is proved by the things that you have done. Sometimes I think when we help people that are in need, it feels like a black hole. <laughs> I'm investing in things and it's just, I mean, it's not changing. I know that it's going nowhere. Uh, and I give it to them, and then pff, what are they going to do with it? But in reality, helping people in need is in fact one of the only things that you can do that will last forever. Sure, it has no benefit here on earth, and, and it may not last at all here on earth, but it will last for eternity as a testimony of the genuineness of our faith. In the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey is the main character. Maybe you've seen this. It's getting time to watch that movie again. If you haven't seen it, you need to. Um, but George Bailey is about to jump off a bridge and end his life because he had lost this large sum of money. He saw no way of getting out of this debt, and so he decides he's going to end his life. He'd, he'd actually invested his life at the Bailey Building and Loan, helping people. He's doing good for people, helping strangers, helping friends, helping neighbors, using his money to make life better for these folks, but, but in the end, he felt like he had nothing to show for it. Unlike Mr. Potter. Mr. Potter's the richest and the meanest man in town, and Mr. Potter has tons of wealth but no friends. So George is there on the bridge, ready to jump off, 
And just before he can, his guardian angel, Clarence, what a great name for a guardian angel, Clarence shows up and visits him. And through a series of events, he reveals to George what, his, what life would be like for other people if he had never lived, if he had never been born. How would life have changed for all these people that, that he had helped if he had never been born? And so he sees this and he realizes, I actually made a difference. Like, I, I did some good for all these people. And so he's resolved now to, to go back home, to not end his life. He, he rushes home to his family and, and, and they're there and all of a sudden all his, all his friends that he had made start, start coming in. All the people that he had blessed with all this worldly wealth that he had and they start coming in and they fill this table in front of him with money. They give him all of this money to pay for the debt that he had. So there's this sense of all that, he had invested in his friends, was returned to him in his time of need. And you remember that, that great scene where his, his brother Harry, he's just back from the war, he raises a toast. He says, to my big brother George, the richest man in town. <coughs> and so he's, I don't know why I get so emotional. <laughs> everyone's, sing, everyone's around him and, and they're singing. And, and, and George, on top of the pile of money, he finds this book. The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, and it's from Clarence, his guardian angel, and written in the, in the front of the book, it says, Dear George, remember, no man is a failure. <laughs> no man is a failure who has friends. So, you got one life. Right? What's this phrase? We all know this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So we want to invest our money in things that will last forever. That's what Jesus says in Luke 12, right? We've read this. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in heaven that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. How do you get that money bag that won't grow old? You sell everything you have and you give it to the needy. That's what he says to do. So, we've all got money. Brothers and sisters, let's use our money. Let's invest our money in things that will last. Let's use your money to make Friends, to make friends with the poor and the lame and the crippled and the blind, with orphans, with widows, to make friends with those that are of this world that are lost in darkness. Make friends, friends who will one day, in, in some mysterious way, as we enter into heaven, those friends will one day testify he actually believed what he said. She believed what she told me, and she showed it by investing in me, by making friends with me in the money that he had, in the money that she had. And thanks be to God that, that Jesus calls us his friends. You can't buy friendship with Jesus, though. Jesus has bought friendship with you. Jesus has, has paid the price for our sin. Jesus has done it with his own blood. Jesus died to make you his friend. And now he calls us to use what we have. 
our money, our possessions, and even like Him, that we would lay down our lives for people in darkness, for people in need, that we would leverage all these things to invest in something that will last forever. Let's take a moment of silence, reflect on God's Word, and then I will close this in prayer. Lord God, we, we confess together that we want we want friends that can give us things in this life. We get so confused. We want to use our money in things that bring us pleasure now. Lord, change our minds about that. Help us to see that if we take our money and we invest it in, in those in need, that that will last forever, for all eternity. But change the way we think about our money. Help us to stop spending it on ourselves. Help us to stop investing in things that just benefit us. Help us to help those in need with everything that we have, with, with our money, with our possessions, with, with our entire lives. Well, that's what you've called us to do. That's why we're still here. That's what you showed us. You were an example for us of that, Lord. You, you were so clear in the way that you laid down your life for us. We who were so lame, we couldn't come to you. So crippled, we couldn't walk near you. So blind, we couldn't even see you. We were orphans. We were poor. And you saved us. Lord, help us to show your love to others in this way. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.